Welcome to another edition of the Humanitarian AI Today podcast. This is a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups. They're actually all across, so they're in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, and Tokyo. This is a global meetup group, and we're here today bringing you this podcast. I'm Faith Schofield. I'm stepping in today to cover for Mia. I'm actually a member of the Tech for Good Live podcast series, which is based in the UK. And I also actually work for a digital agency that purely works with nonprofits called MNR. As I said, I'm the guest host for today, but I'm joined by an even more special guest, Seth Goodman from Aid Data. Aid Data is a research lab at the William and Mary Public University in Williamsburg in Virginia. This interview is actually going to be part of a series of pre-recorded interviews we're producing for Humanitarian's AI upcoming Sprint for Humanitarian AI Virtual Summit. Might sound like a mouthful, but this is a big deal. This summit is focusing on profiling humanitarian data sources and ways that data can be used by today and tomorrow's humanitarian AI specialists. So we're super excited to have Seth joining me today. So, Seth, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about Aid Data and its mission? Sure. Thanks, Fang. Thanks for having me. So, I work as a data engineer within Aid Data's research and evaluation unit. Um, the work I do and the work Aid Data does has a broader aim of trying to equip policymakers and practitioners with better evidence to prove how aid is targeted, monitored, evaluated by leveraging rigorous methods, cutting edge tools, and granular data. We have an interdisciplinary team that ranges from economists and geographers to policy analysts and developers. Over the past 16 or so years that Data has been around, we've managed more than 90 grants and contracts worth over $50 million. We've got work ranging across a few different pillars, different areas. That includes creating tools to make geospatial data more accessible, conducting household surveys and running geospatial impact evaluations to understand the effectiveness of development programs, using machine learning and AI to produce new data sets and analysis, collecting and geocoding data on aid projects, including opaque donor sources such as Chinese aid, um, surveying leaders in low middle income countries on their development priorities and progress. Nice. Is there, so obviously for the upcoming sprint um, for the Humanitarian AI Virtual Summit, we're obviously profiling humanitarian data sources. What kind of data sources does aid data use and how might that be interesting for our members? You know, obviously really thinking specifically about AI and in working um, in working on humanitarian AI projects. Yes, we've got some really great data sources that Aid Data has been using in a lot of ways, but not a lot of it has been AI related. So nice. one of the big areas that started Aid Data all those years ago was just trying to collect and geocode all this information on Aid projects. Because at that point in time, no one was doing this. There was no one was knowing where aid projects were actually located. There were these stores of documentation and country and donor systems that no one had ever really gone through. So aid data went into all these country aid management systems. They work with donors like the World Bank, Global Environment Facility to get all their documentation, organize it, and actually go through with student teams to pull up location information, put exact coordinates from where these projects were taking place. So now we have data sets for about 15 different countries from their actual country aid management systems. We have all the World Bank projects from, I think, 1995 to through 2014, a wide range of projects from the Global Environment Facility. And we also have, as far as I know, the largest and potentially only data set on Chinese funded activities. Wow. Um, all these are, I think, 
on the order of hundreds of thousands of locations around the world. Wow, okay, it's a big deal then. Yeah. <laughs> super, yeah, super big deal. That's a great intro into obviously aid data, but what do you do specifically at aid data? Can you share with us like what your like what's what's a day in the life of Seth Goodman at aid data? Sure. So I think we'll talk about some of this in more detail, but my focus is really on how do we work with geospatial data, answering research questions, translating those research questions into computational methods using high performance computing clusters, attributed computing, machine learning and also doing a bunch of outreach and capacity building with partners and other organizations, bring, helping them figure out how to use geospatial data and new and innovative methods to answer their questions. Nice, amazing. And just obviously before we kind of get into the nitty gritty um, about your work at Aid Data and what's entailed, is there anything that you'd really specifically like to discuss with our listeners today or like yeah, just what would you like to talk about today? You know, we're all we're all ears and we're super excited to learn some more. But yeah, just to give a quick summary to our listeners, what can they expect to hear from you on today's podcast? Yeah, so I mean, I got plenty of things I want to talk about. But <laughs> a bit, I'd say it's that geospatial data doesn't have to be this monstrous project of incorporating into your work. You don't have to have all this crazy computational resources and technical experience just to get some benefit from incorporating geospatial data. And we'll talk a bit more about some tools we, we have to help people do that and other resources. And then the second thing is some of the cool AI work we're doing using nice. new applications called convolutional neural networks to take satellite imagery and existing sparse data sources, such as survey data that collects information on poverty and how we can use that to train models that predict poverty for much more broader areas. You mentioned very quickly there, just like one of the tools that obviously Aid Data has at its disposal to do this work. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this tool is called GeoQuery. Is that is that is that the right tool? And if so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about GeoQuery? Yeah, it is GeoQuery. Um, so I'll go a little bit back into Aid Data's history when I started. To yeah, please do. Um, so when I first started, I was doing sort of research report and just you know manual organization of spatial data for projects. Wow. Uh, over time, I was doing more and more of this, and we started to develop this internal tool just to make my life easier. Eventually, that got to the stage where it was something, you know, we built a, a front end for it, and it was running on our high-performance computing cluster, HPC, um, and it was working out pretty well. We, and we got to the point where we said, you know, this is incredibly useful for us, partners mm -hmm. working for it, work, working with, um, let's make it public. Nice. That was essentially how GeoQuery came about. For anyone who hasn't seen GeoQuery before, what it is essentially trying to do is make geospatial data more accessible. Nice. Um, so we do that in the format of allowing users to first select some boundary of an area they're interested in. So these are something like administrative units, so mm -hmm. Drix and Ghana. We then populate on the website all the relevant data sets that we have in our system. We have 60 plus different data sets, which I can go into a bit more later. Select different options for it, submit your request, and when you get back, it's just a simple, easy to use spreadsheet that you can wow. incorporate into you know, R, Python, Excel, whatever you're comfortable using. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And so you were doing all of this manually then before GeoQuery ever came about. Wow, <laughs> okay. Um, you mentioned very, you mentioned quickly there just the sort of data 
that's involved in GeoQuery. Can you just, yeah, can you just give us a quick, like a bit of a rundown into what actually data is involved in this tool? Like, what does it map? What does it, what does it look at? What does it do? Sure. So the first piece, the boundaries, which you can use to aggregate your data come from a new data source that another student-led team at William & Mary is producing called GeoBoundaries. Nice. So this is completely open source boundaries for every country in the world, as fine as they can find it. So, you know, counties, states, districts, whatever is available for each country, completely free and open source. Then the actual data you can get aggregated to those boundaries include the geocoded data we discussed earlier, a wide range of remotely sensed data, so stuff like nighttime lights that are visible from space, temperature, forest cover, number of other things we get from NASA, other satellite providers, as well as a whole bunch of socioeconomic data like population, distance to cities, GDP. Wow. That all sounds so, I don't know, it just sounds like so much data to kind of compute. Have you got any kind of, just to sort of, you know, just to help me <laughs> and our listeners kind of wrap our heads around this, have you got kind of like a, a real life example that you could share with us about how GeoQuery has like used this data and, and then how it's been used by your partners and, and different organizations. Uh, I mean, just to give you some scale for this too, this is about 15 to 20 terabytes worth of wow. data condenses into, you know, depending yeah. on the <laughs> into a small CSV that might be a megabyte or smaller. Oh, okay. So will be a good example. So one of our recent projects was evaluating the impact of road projects in Tanzania and Ghana. So very simple rundown of what we're doing is we'd have these buffers around road projects and we want to evaluate whether the new roads were having an impact on the economic activity in those regions. So we would take those buffers, extract nighttime light data from GeoQuery and compare that over time and seeing is that nighttime light as an indicator of economic activity changing over time. Interesting. Cool. It's just, it's just, I just find it so fascinating to, you know, to actually think how, how we can use this sort of data for that kind of real life example. I just think that's, I just think that's super fascinating. Um, You've obviously touched on quite a lot of the data that's already in GeoQuery at the minute, but is there any kind of, new sort of data sets that you see could be added to this tool and how and how they might be used? Yeah, so I mean, there's so much facial data out there with the potential to be included. A lot of what we decide to put in there is really driven by stuff that users ask for. So if anyone wants any data, they don't see any there, send us an email um, and our own work, what we need for projects. If I'm going to process something for one evaluation we're doing, I'm going to throw it in GeoQuery anyway, just so we don't have to do that again in the future. One of the coolest new types of data sets we're working to get incorporated are these outcome measures that we're generating using convolutional neural networks. That's to predict stuff like poverty, conflict, and potentially other things. Nice. So can you just kind of digging in on that a little bit more, can you tell us more about what work are you kind of doing to sort of um, look at these outcome measures, you know, surrounding poverty and conflict um, generated using ML. Um, and just what what is, again, for me and for our listeners, what, what do you mean by ML and what is that kind of, what does that work involve? So I'll give you a little bit of background context to, it'll help you understand why these 
machine learning types of outputs there. Machine are learning, there. cool. All right, thank you. <laughs> Breaking it down. So in general, the best way to get estimates of something like poverty is to actually go out in the field and have surveys done. Ask people, what kind of assets do you have? How much do you make? What are you spending on? And that's been the traditional gold standard way of doing this. Of course, that's expensive to do, takes time, and it's really difficult to get the kind of coverage. Like you're not gonna be able to survey an entire country. You have to sample. So what researchers have done over the years is they would find proxy indicators. So one that I mentioned before that's been really popular is using nighttime lights. That's a pretty solid indicator of economic activity, wealth, and a whole bunch of other things. The biggest problem is that your ability to see those nighttime lights is based on the quality of the sensor on the satellite taking the pictures. And unfortunately, it's not always been great at sensing light in the poorest areas where it's very dim. And those tend to be the areas where we want to have that information the most. It's important to know that we need to get aid to these people in these poor areas. So a couple of years ago, there was a group out of Stanford that started doing some research in this and how can we use machine learning to somehow improve this? What they found was that you could use something called a convolutional neural network to take a combination of satellite imagery, daytime imagery, like you'd see pictures of, um, nighttime lights and survey data, and you could train the network to see the features in the landscape that are associated with uh, different levels of nighttime lights and wealth and get a more accurate sense, especially in those low income areas. So a bit background on convolutional neural networks for anyone that doesn't know what that is. Um, these are essentially just a machine learning AI algorithm that is focused on computer vision. It takes in an image some label for that image, and it's trying to find features that are correlated between the two. So you feed it in bunches of images of cats and dogs, it learns cats have pointy ears, dogs have floppy ears, and that's how you connect the two. Um, there's great data sets for doing this in your common use cases, dog, cats, houses, cars, but there's not for satellite imagery. So what we do is we take this massive data set called ImageNet. It's, I think it's 14 million plus images and all the open source neural network tools come with these pre-trained networks on this data set. And there's this, this idea out there that the base features that neural networks learn, uh, convolutional neural networks learn, are very similar regardless of the task. So these would be learning features like lines and shapes. So even though we might be trained on cats and dogs, lines and shapes are still relevant to cars and houses. So we extend that a bit. We have this data set on common images and we use it for satellite imagery. And the key part is our data set is used to just fine tune it. So we take those base features and then we learn the complicated features based on our own data set. Nice, thank you for the background. This is, yeah, this is super interesting and it's, you know, we always kind of read terms sort of like machine learning and, and kind of stuff like that, but actually really getting an understanding of what that actually means is super interesting. So with these kind of machine, you know, with these sort of machine learning outcomes, how do you see them being, how do you see them being used in sort of real life scenarios? And is there any kind of machine learning project? I know you've touched on a few, but is there any kind of specific projects where where machine learning is being used that you could um, share with us and kind of dive into a little bit more? 
Yeah, we've worked on a few so far. Some of the first ones we we did were dealing with poverty, like I talked about. So um, trying to do the same impact of road projects that we did with nighttime lights, but also using these poverty measures that we generated using the convolutional neural networks. We've done that in Tanzania and Ghana. Uh, we are now also working with USAID to predict non-permissive environments. So that, that essentially means is, is it safe for us to send aid workers into different areas? A little bit of information on that is that, you know, they have security officers making these decisions and they're basing this on years and years of experience and what they know on the ground. But there tends to be, once an area is bad, they're not gonna risk sending people in there. Even if potentially a situation has changed, it's not worth the risk. So what the new CNN based outcome measures can do trying to predict non-person environments to say, hey, maybe it's worth taking a second look there, um, try and gather more information. So that was one other project. Um, that one was actually just, you know, we had another article in a peer reviewed journal published on that, transactions in GIS, if anyone is really interested and wants to go read that. Some other work we're doing, new project we're gonna be starting soon with ITAD and DFID out of UK is on the impact of removing mines on communities. Wow. So all sorts of uh, demining activities in places like Cambodia, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. all around the world. And we're trying to see if once those were removed, if there were improvements in the economic, economic activity of those areas, if their wealth improved. Wow, that's super interesting. And again, it's, you know, when you kind of explain it, when you explain it like that, it just, the impact that machine learning can have is huge. You know, this, this is kind of the sort of tech that changes the world, <laughs> which is obviously, um, which is obviously what we're all about on this podcast. Um, What's kind of, you know, I know you've touched on a couple of projects that you're working on, that you're working on right now, but is there any kind of big opportunities that you see for machine learning at aid data? Is there anything kind of big, you know, sort of on the horizon or any sort of opportunities that you could really see, you know, machine learning coming into it, like coming in and having a great impact on aid data? We've got a number of things that we're working on or hoping to see someday. Um, so one of them is just taking these convolutional neural networks that we've been running locally. We have a handful of GPUs uh, at William Mary, um, and we have now a grant from Microsoft AI for Earth for cloud credits, trying to get this running on Azure. And the idea there is not that just this would just be scalable, but we could also use this to train other people and get this to other organizations in Africa where they might be able to really benefit from being able to run these things on their own. So another partnership we're working on developing is with some organizations in Africa to have them share data, us train them on these methods and see if we can help everyone out. That's one. Another one is all the data we've got out of GeoQuery. So we have these administrative boundaries around the world. I think, you know, individual boundaries, it's something like 300,000. All the different data sets and temporal steps we have for it results in something on the order of tens of millions of individual data points for every administrative unit around the world. We're providing that to users as they requested and for our own projects on, you know, piecemeal basis, but no one's ever really explored the potential for doing any sort of ML work with that. And I think there's really some potential opportunities there. Nice. And of course, 2020 has been, has been a year, shall we say, you know, we've, we've all had to, we all had to deal with, you know, kind of um, the uprise of the pandemic and, 
COVID and, and everything like that is has machine learning or is there any opportunity for machine learning in in terms of kind of you know working with the pandemic or is there any sort of project that you're kind of working on where machine learning can shed a light on you know the impact of covid around the world or, or anything like that just be super interested and i'm sure our listeners would be as well just to kind of think how the world of machine learning has changed obviously um with what's unfolded globally um in 2020 so far yeah i think there's definitely some opportunities out there we're in the early stages of working on a partnership with the telecom in africa to get cell phone call data records and some health survey information and trying to explore ways that we could use our existing machine learning tools, um, network analysis to identify you know, influencers and social networks to spread tips for staying safe during the pandemic and stuff like that. Wow, so amazing. Hopefully we have more information on that on from ADATA in the future. But yeah, early. that sounds like such vital, such vital work. and. You know, again, just for anyone listening to this podcast, make sure that you go and visit the Aid Data website and keep up to speed on that. Um, the whole kind of, you know, AI, machine learning, working in that kind of sector is just is just kind of not not like a typical route that people might go down career wise. Um, so, yeah, could you just share with us how did you get into this? Like, what's your background? What brought you, you know, what brought you to Aid Data and obviously um, the College of William Mary? Like, how did you get there? So I had a bit of a odd journey here, which I feel like <laughs> it's crazy these days, but I started off getting my bachelor's and master's in uh, electrical engineering. Oh, cool. Uh, while I was finishing up my master's, applying for jobs, I kind of was just thinking I might want to do something else. I was exploring other interests. Uh, programming, working with spatial data, neuroscience. Um, I almost went into a PhD in neuroscience at William wow. Mary, which was how I came across A-Data. Oh, cool. My original boss at A-Data, who is now my PhD advisor, I'm doing a PhD in computational geography now. He was just starting off at A-Data at the time as their geospatial scientist. And I basically just went and said, hey, can I hang out while I'm applying for jobs and learn some stuff, help out? I ended up loving it here and I've been here ever since. That's amazing. And it's always, it's always kind of the unplanned career journeys, which always, you know, always lead to the kind of most interesting, most interesting end. I know we've obviously chatted a little bit in terms of um, the impact that machine learning is going to have on a data and kind of what's, you know, what's unfolding right now. But is there anything that interests like you personally about, you know, where tech and AI is really headed? And is there any yeah, is there any kind of op opportunity that you see on the horizon where these two are kind of going to meet and, you know, where it could change the world as we know it, to be completely blunt? There's a lot of cool stuff. There's always too much to follow. Uh, for yeah. me, <laughs> I love spatial data. I work with computer vision stuff a lot. So more and more satellite imagery at higher resolutions becoming available, um, easier to access is, is really cool. I think the potential is, you know, we're already starting to see in some areas. I think it's just going to keep expanding. Um, there's been stuff, recent efforts to start building communities to create machine learning training data sets out of the satellite imagery, labeling for different tasks. That's something we've been doing at ADATA a lot for homework, figuring out how to label this. Um, it's going to be incredibly important for other applications. And I think it's just going to keep growing within the community, which is really cool. Nice. No, that sounds super interesting. And obviously, 
I guess kind of thinking, kind of scratching below the surface, you know, we are a humanitarian AI podcast. Our listeners are going to be working in that in the humanitarian community. Is there anything that that humanitarian community in your, in, you know, in your opinion needs to do to prepare for like the age of AI? Like what's the community missing at the moment? Or is that, you know, is there any, yeah, is there any kind of um, opportunities there that you see, the the humanitarian community actually needs to do and like action they need to take to make sure that they're prepared as i say for the for the age of artificial intelligence which we're pretty much in at the moment but is as you said is only going to continue to grow one of the biggest things i've noticed in my time at a data in particular dealing with geocoding data is that historically a lot of development organizations haven't really kept the the best data. They keep records of everything. It's just, you know, there's a pile of paper somewhere. It's not a data set. So having that in mind, going into new projects that, you know, we're going to record everything that we can in a standardized way that's documented with metadata, do that for everything. Doing that earlier is going to make all the difference in the world later. You know, Anyone dealing with machine learning AI is going to tell you it's all about the data you have to train and on. Um, and having that historic data is critical. If someone decides they want to start using machine learning AI in a year and they say, oh, we don't have any of our data from the past, that's going to hurt them. So yeah. <laughs> starting to think early about what data you need, what potential questions you could answer with that data, um, just start asking that internally at your different organizations. How can AI help us? Mm -hmm. um, maybe talking to people who know more about AI. It's not critical that every organization hires, you know, programmers and AI experts. Uh, it's just getting that conversation going and starting to think early. Nice. And that, I think that's a really good point that you've, you've just touched on is that obviously not every single organization is going to be able to have their own AI in-house expert or anything like that. So do, is, do you have any recommendations, I guess, again, thinking about the broader humanitarian community, about how we could actually begin to share that data more and making that data more accessible, you know, to humanitarian actors and consumers of AI applications. So again, you know, just really thinking, like what practical tips can you give that the humanitarian community can begin to do to make this, um, make this dream a reality? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd say there's a lot of efforts to make data more accessible including GeoQuery. Um, there's a lot of other great projects where it's just, you know, providing repositories, uh, stuff like humanitarian data exchange, where people can put this data in the public space. Overall, there's absolutely been progress made there. I still think there's a lot, a long way to go. There's tons of data silos. Just when I'm finding data for GeoQuery, the number of times I have to go in and say, all right, this place is using their own metadata, their own download format. I have to go figure out what their documentation says about how it was processed. Um, there's not always some standard way. And, and it just makes anyone who wants to use that data, it makes their lives harder. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's one big area. I think another one is having the pieces in the community, the, the players there that can help people deal with data processing, uh, data lifecycle, data journey. One great organization that we've worked with on GeoQuery, we have a partner from the Cloud Error Foundation. They've been supporting our work on GeoQuery to not only scale it up, but also to do outreach and work with other organizations to show them how they can use spatial data, 
uh, machine learning and Cloudera Foundation hosts their own series of workshops about just helping people in this space figure out their own data journey, how their data life cycle is going to work, what kind of pieces they need in place, how to make it all a reality. Nice. You kind of touched on there very quickly about standardization, which obviously when we're dealing with data, you know, as, as you rightly said, you've gone in, you've looked at these data sets, they're not using the right metadata, and then that's harder for that person then to be able to work with this data going forward. So do you really think then that we need that we need more sort of data sharing, harmonization and standardization, that's a mouthful, initiatives kind of across the sector? Like, do you think that's not, I, I, obviously not a quick fix, because none, none of this will be a quick fix, but do you think it's kind of like a basic kind of rule going forward that having those initiatives in place would, again, continue to prepare the humanitarian community for the age of AI? Yeah, I think in general, having some standards people can look to and say, all right, I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, but everyone else is using this. Maybe that's a good starting point. That's always a good place to, to start with. Um, there are a lot of initiatives like that. There's plenty of data standards out there. Um, I'm not quite sure what the, the missing piece is to get that to have, you know, enough momentum to take over the space and never have to worry about how you're going to look for metadata again. But yeah, it's always something worth keeping in mind. Yeah. Cool. No, it's again, I just I think all of this is super interesting. And, you know, especially as we're kind of especially as we're kind of thinking about the future and, you know, AI always sounds like so futuristic, doesn't it? You know, when we kind of think about AI, we always think of like films and I wrote, I do anyway. Um, but for you, like how how would you like to see humanitarian actors and kind of artificial intelligent applications interact? Like what's your ideal futuristic picture? about how these two kind of different buckets could begin to work together. So yeah, I'd love it if you could paint a futuristic picture for us as we kind of thinking about the, the age of AI. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess in an ideal world, we have something where every organization just automatically fed every single minute detail about their projects, their work in some machine parsable format to some it's a central system that anyone that wants to say, you know, I, I have AI experience, I want to do some good with this. How do I pull the right data? Where do I get that? They just look in the main system and they have this massive repository of all the training data they could ever need. And then you put those two people together and say, all right, I gave you the data, I have the AI skills. How do we come up with a problem and a way to solve it? Nice. Collaboration. Yeah. Integration and collaboration. Yeah. Um, I know we've talked a lot about different, and I, I don't know if you ever get asked this question, and if this is a silly question, please like feel free to tell me, but do you have a favorite data source? Is that something that like folks working in AI would share, be like, oh, I love, I don't know, satellite imagery is my favorite data source. Or yeah, what's, what's your favorite kind of data source to obviously to kind of work with and which sort of, what kind of data do you see as having the biggest impact? I feel like most people say something like nighttime lights just because it is a really cool data set. Pretty. <laughs> I, say for me, it's probably more influenced just by what I use on a, on a basis, what the biggest lift is and like what data source is making easier from easiest for me. And I'd have to go with Landsat. Just as a series of satellite imagery, it goes back decades. It has amazing documentation you know, from NASA. They document everything you could possibly ever want. 
it's been around long enough that there's tools, tutorials, everything you could want. There's applications and research papers using it in all different sectors. It's really just an incredible data set. Nice. Uh, it's so interesting. And again, thank you, you know, obviously, thank you for taking the time to like walk us through, you know, aid data and machine learning and all that kind of thing. Um, we do just want to obviously give, we always want to give our guests the opportunity to kind of plug any news that they've got coming up or like event news or if, if you have any needs or like, you know, takeaways that our listeners can obviously take away with them. So yeah, is there any any kind of upcoming events or news from Aid Data that you'd like to share with our members? I think the one related thing I would mention, uh, I talked about Cloud Era Foundation workshops earlier. They're gonna be hosting a series over the next rest of this year, I believe, just on the, the data journey and life cycle. They don't have a sign up list yet, but if you follow Cloud Era Foundation on Twitter or LinkedIn, they'll be posting that up whenever it's available. Nice. Yeah. And we'll make sure, obviously, when we release this episode to put all the links in um, that you've mentioned today. Um, the other kind of question that I have for you is, do you need anything? You know, is, is there anything, is there an example that anything that our members um, could do to help volunteer or to help out your team? You know, is a data, could the humanitarian AI podcast community help you out in any of the work that you've got upcoming? Um, yeah. So I would say two things. One, just go out and do cool stuff. Use our data. Send us what you're doing with it. I'd love to see that. If you want more data that you don't know how to process, you want to see it in GeoQuery, send me an email and I'll do my best to get it in there. Um, then another project, GeoBoundaries. They have a great student team. They have a website, geoboundaries.org, and a GitHub repo where anyone can provide better boundaries than they currently have available, work on packages for people to access it using programming languages. Feel free to go contribute to that. They'd love to help. Um, and I think just, you know, general takeaways. I just want people to know that spatial data and machine learning AI doesn't have to be this crazy thing that's too difficult for anyone to use. You don't need all this specialized training just to get spatial data. Um, go check out Adata, GeoQuery. If you have any questions, get in touch with me and I'll do my best to help everyone. Nice. Where can people find you online? Like, do you, have you got like a Twitter handle that you want to plug or yeah, where, where can folks find you online to ask, to ask all these questions that they're going to um, have about spatial data and machine learning? Um, you can just email me sgoodman at adata.org. I'm on GitHub for most of my projects. I think that's nice. probably the way. Yeah. Oh, perfect. You have to make a Twitter handle. <laughs> you need to get on Twitter. Do get yeah. on Twitter. Um, we can talk about that. I work in social. We'll sort you out. I've learned about machine learning. I can help you with Twitter. Thank you, Seth, for joining us again today. Super appreciate you taking the time to walk through what AI means and what machine learning means and the impact that it's really having kind of on the world as we know it, fighting poverty, fighting conflict and all this kind of stuff. You know, as I said at the beginning, I am a complete newbie when it comes to AI and for me, AI is just, you know, what you see in sci-fi films with like robots revolting against humanity and trying to take over, but actually it's not that big and it's not that scary. And thank you for taking the time to break that down with us and share it with me and our listeners. This brings this edition of the Humanitarian AI Today podcast to a close, but please feel free to send us some tweets, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and thank you for tuning in.